Janina is a Sri Lankan friend of ours from Vancouver. We have her permission to share the story this morning. She arrived in Canada with her family applying for refugee status. She met and married a Canadian, and he sponsored her spousal immigration. But her Sri Lankan passport mysteriously went missing when two kids, yeah, in the middle of a bureaucracy. She started sorting this all out, but when two kids came along and a family tragedy came into their uh, season, they changed addresses a few times and her bureaucratic fervor kind of trailed off and got left on the wayside, even though she continued to work and pay taxes and raise her family. For decades, she had no status in Canada, so she couldn't travel back to Sri Lanka to obtain a replacement passport. She was stuck. And one morning, she went out the door, like every morning, off to work. Only this time, instead of taking the bus, she got a ride and a set of handcuffs when Canadian Border Services showed up at her door to deport her back to her country from a home that she'd known for 20 years. Now she was even more stuck. What was to happen to her family, her boys? Would she ever see them again? Now, our situations may not be as extreme as hers, but I think we can all relate to being stuck and needing someone to rescue us. We're walking through the God Story, Our Story series of messages, where we look at how Christ is revealed throughout Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. We started in the creation event and looked at the fall, and last week we looked at God's promise to Abraham. To the promise to make him a great nation and to bless the whole world through him and his descendants. As we learn God's story revealed in Scripture, we discover that we are pulled into God's bigger story through Christ. Our lives have significance and meaning already before we ever accomplish a single thing in our lives. Today's texts that we heard read by Epi and Leah It takes place 430 years after Abraham. Several generations later, God, after God had promised Abraham. But now his descendants number at least a million people. But they're not in their own land. In fact, they are living under slavery to the ancient superpower, Egypt. God's people are being used to make bricks for Egypt's building and expansion. God like with Adam and Eve, like with Abraham, picks one person to be the channel to unfold his story through. Here, his name is Moses. And God wants Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity. And our text today captures this interaction. We're going to walk through this encounter in three stages and see how God sees us and sees you and how God sees injustice and how God delivers. In this passage, Moses goes through an identity crisis, asking, where do I belong? You see, Moses was of Hebrew descent. And as a baby, he was born during a time when the power-hungry Pharaoh issued an edict that all infant Hebrew boys must be killed. So fearing for their son's life, Moses' parents entrust him to the Lord and float him down the river in a basket. Pharaoh's daughter happens to find him and takes him in and raises him as an Egyptian prince. Moses, born of Hebrew blood, 
with an adoptive Egyptian mother and an adoptive grandpa intent on destroying all of Moses' people. When he becomes a young man, Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And in a rage of injustice, Moses kills this Egyptian slave owner. And he now has to flee. He's conflicted on so many levels. Where does Moses belong? What was Moses to do with the sense of injustice that he witnessed and now is on the run for because of his actions? It's in a land far away from home that God meets him and calls him at this burning bush. As we heard in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. I take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The Lord calls the ground holy, not because of that particular physical location, but because of God's own holiness and his presence there. The word holy simply means set apart. God is holy and he is the one who declares and makes a place holy. And it is in this profound encounter with the holy living God that he finds his identity as a descendant of Abraham affirmed. Moses is reminded that he belongs to a people group to whom God has pledged himself to and promised blessing upon. And in God's presence, Moses is reminded that he is a child. He's a child of promise. He's not just an animal on the run. And in this encounter, the Lord rehumanizes Moses by reminding him of his identity. Though Moses has an extraordinary encounter with an extraordinary God at this burning bush, as Jean reminded us, it's the extraordinary God that makes this encounter profound, not the physical location. Now, many of us probably don't have burning bush moments like Moses, but we can encounter the presence of the almighty living God. We can open, open our hearts to him through faith as we read his word. As we pray, as we worship in song, as we have done this morning, as we walk and talk with wise and godly friends, God's presence shows up in unlikely places. And when it does, he always reminds us that we are seen. He reminds us of our place in relation to him as a beloved child of God, as a child of promise. God sees us and we feel like Moses when things are far apart from what we expect, God sees us when we find ourselves shepherding sheep in a foreign land with what feels like no purpose and no belonging. When we encounter God's presence and are reminded of our identity, we also begin to hear God's heart for the world. In this burning bush encounter, God reminds Moses that he sees the suffering of his people and the injustice they are enduring. As we heard in the verses, in just the verses previous to what we uh, read, in the final chapter, verses of chapter 2, we we're told that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And in verse 7 that we heard, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned for their suffering. And in verse 9, he repeats it again. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. When God looks upon his people who are suffering, he sees the injustice. 
We are comforted by his empathy for them. But his empathy empathy is not a patronizing empathy, kind of like roadkill empathy. You know what that's like, right? When you're driving along the highway and you see a raccoon or a carcass on the side of the road and you're like, oh, poor raccoon, so cute. Ooh, Chick-fil-A, next exit. Let's go for lunch. That's patronizing empathy. It's not just the physical suffering that God burdens God's heart. He feels for them because far, they are far from his image-bearing ideal. Abraham's descendants, as well as Pharaoh and even his Egyptian henchmen, all of them are living as broken image-bearers of God. And God knows that, and he sees it. In the creation account that we looked at a few weeks ago, the crowning achievement of all creation on the sixth day are humans, God's created creatures, and those who are made in his image. The Hebrew word salem is translated image in that, those initial verses. In the early instances where we find that word in Scripture. But later on, everywhere else in Scripture, we see that word translated, that same Hebrew word, as idol in a negative sense of being vain and shallow tokens of, gods, of the gods they represent. It's kind of strange to think of it this way, but the world actually is intended to be full of idols, full of images of God in the positive sense. The world is meant to be full of representatives of their maker, and the only adequate representation of their creator are human image bearers, not lifeless non-persons and figures and statues, not devices, nor drugs. Jaya Kumar Christian is the director of World Vision in India. He works to fight for injustice, fight against injustice in his country. And he comments on how the root of poverty in his country is not the lack or misdistribution of money or the lack or misdistribution of resources. In his observation, the core problem of poverty and persistent injustice is that someone is playing God in the life of another person or groups of people. Humanity suffers when God's image bearers become idols, those who play God at the expense of those who suffer injustice. In his context, he identifies moneylenders as those who play God. In India, moneylenders promise to assist families in poverty with loans that have exorbitant interest. And when families are unable to repay the moneylenders' terms, Their children, usually young girls, are taken from the home to work for the moneylenders. But when their work is not enough to cover the exponentially increasing interest, this young girl is no longer an employee. She becomes the the moneylender's slave to be used and exploited without any recourse. Exploitation doesn't just happen over there. It happens in our own backyard. In Thursday's Washington Post, one of the women quoted anonymously about her time in D.C. area prep school parties. And she says this, When alcohol was involved, it always got worse. The boys were really unable to regard young women as intellectual social equals, and it was really infuriating to me. It's so jarring to feel like you're a competent, confident person, and then boys can't treat you like a human. Again, injustice and dehumanization. 
Seven years ago, Julie and I became foster parents for two toddler boys. I think they're in the middle. Yeah, they're in the middle there. Both of their biological grandparents, false, oh, one, one of their biological grandparents accused us falsely of wanting the boys for selfish reasons and mistreating them. My identity and in integrity was attacked. False claims were made against me publicly in the media. Our generosity seemed to be turned against us. I was angry. I didn't have any mystical burning bush moment, but I knew that God had met Julia and I during that season. As I processed my anger and our role in this situation, God spoke to Julia and I. We were reminded that we had originally prayed for God to grow our family through adoption or fostering. We felt that God had given us enough and the resources to share our home, especially for children who didn't have homes for themselves or parents for themselves. But taking a step back, here were three families, two sets of biological grandparents and us, who were fighting to be a home for the, these two boys. Our identity and confidence was not found in being proven right or being found in being the best home for them. We did not need to play God in that situation. We simply remembered that we had been adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. Though we didn't belong to this family through blood or by merit, we now did because of God's mercy and love. Our call to share this God's, uh, God's love with children was to invite them into healthy homes and to be their parents. So we pressed on that year to cultivate peaceful relationships with these grandparents who had slandered us. Knowing that God saw our suffering and the injustice on all sides of our situation. Seeing the biological grandparents as humans, despite the injustice of how they treated us, allowed us to walk through this with God's strength. Just as God's, God knew and saw the injustice and captivity of Israel, he also sees the injustice that we face. And that is incredibly comforting. Back to Janina's story. You remember, she was stuck in Canada in deportation jail, about to be torn from her family and deported to Sri Lanka. Well, friends jumped in to support her. They prayed. They cried out for help. They organized a media blitz complete with uh, local news station coverage and a newspaper article in the national newspaper in Canada. Nothing could change the situation, though. She was still stuck. Until an intervention by what we in Canada call a member of parliament, equivalent to a congresswoman or congressman in America. This, per, this member of parliament put some sticks in the fire. And somehow, because of this intervention, her passport was miraculously unearthed amidst files in a forgotten, dusty government warehouse of Canadian immigration. Her status was cleared, and she was officially approved as a Canadian citizen. Deliverance came in an unexpected way. The Israelites find themselves in an even worse predicament. And God calls Moses to be their deliverer, but Moses is no congressman. A reluctant deliverer, Moses didn't know God's full game plan in this, at this time. And he's intimidated with the task to deliver a million people from captivity. He realizes this task before him is too huge. And he's already tried this on his own strength. 
And look where it got him. He's a murderer on the run. Yet God still chooses to use him. Unqualified, full of excuses, God patiently talks through Moses' series of questions. He's not turned off by Moses' lack of confidence. And we, like Moses, can express our lack of confidence. Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And we might be like Moses, expressing our lack of connections. I don't know the right people. God says, I mean, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, Well, what's his name? Moses here asks sensible questions when faced with such a task. Who am I? Who are you? The living God does answer him, but just not in the way that he asks. Instead, he simply answers, I am who I am, and I will be with you. When we question our place and even question God's character, he comes to us and reminds us. It's not who you think you are. It's not what you think you can do, but it's who I am. That's his name. In this calling of Moses, the Lord sets a plan before Moses of how he will deliver his people. He promises to set them free. He makes a committed relationship with them and promises to lead them to the promised land. He delivers them simply because of his character. 1,300 years later, another deliverer is called by God and he shows up on the scene. This one is called by God to save his people from captivity of a different sort. His people are stuck. They're stuck under the burden of sin and its cycles of injustice. Like Moses, Jesus, too, is a shepherd, but also of a different sort. In Luke 4, as we read earlier, he makes a promise to deliver. Jesus is sent, he says, to proclaim good news to the poor. He is sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Actually, he just doesn't make a promise here. He says in the reading of those words, this promise is now fulfilled. The promise is now fulfilled. In a time without public health insurance or social security, we think ours is not that great. This was huge. Jesus came to bring freedom to the most vulnerable, to those who experienced the least justice in his time, the least humanization of his time. How does Jesus deliver those who suffer? Recall what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 20. He says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he, that's Pharaoh, will let you go. Deliverance comes through Jesus as he too stretches out his hand. But instead of striking his hand, striking his oppressors, it's his oppressors who strike his hands and feet with nails on the cross. His hands look weak and dying, but in fact wield forgiveness in life through suffering on our behalf. Jesus is the only truly innocent man to live, and he dies the most unjust death in the world. And those of us who recognize how stuck we are in sin experience the deliverance that he offers. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's our great deliverer. And he responds to God, 
he responds to God's call willingly. Our predicament does not overwhelm him. In fact, he overwhelms our predicament with his love. He is the one who sees us. He is the one who sees our injustice, and he delivers because he is God. The way to experience his freedom that that he offers is simply to respond in trust. Maybe you're here today and you feel overwhelmed in your life. You feel stuck. Or you see others around you that feel that. You feel an injustice has been done against you. You feel that you've got nothing left to give. Know that Jesus sees you. He knows what you're going through. And he has come to deliver you from the worst suffering and injustice ever. A life of eternity apart from him. So whatever you are facing is difficult but not impossible for him. As we close off this message today, I'm going to invite the music team back up into position. I'd like to lead us in a song that becomes our prayer of response. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Angie introduced this song to us, and it talks of how we long to be set free by God. And there, sometimes, you know, we're in those places where we're stuck. We feel overwhelmed, and words don't really do it all. And in, there's an interlude where they sing, oh, and maybe that's part of your prayer today. It's just a saying, oh, oh, oh. So I'm going to invite you to join together as we sing.